This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. If you're listening to this in real time, we are nearing the end of 2021, a year that has been, uh, you know, lackluster by most measurements, although it was really an improvement over 2020. <laughs> For sure. Most of us began 2021 tucked away in quarantine. I'm, I was teaching on Zoom. Christy was meeting with only half of her students half the time on a hybrid schedule. And, you know, no year in my lifetime uh, has began in such a strange way. In, in some ways, it felt that the COVID era is never going to end. And yet, here we are. Celebrating the end of 2021, albeit a little different, but with friends and family. We started this end of year holiday season cooking turkey and ham for Thanksgiving dinner in our home. Those are American holiday staples. We've attended Friendsgivings and Christmas parties, and on December 23rd, we will participate in another Memphis tradition that was suspended for the 2020 year. We will attend, with most of our children, Anna, Lizzie, Ben, and Rachel, Theater Memphis's annual performance of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Now, I know that was a lot of names, and most uh, we haven't really talked much about our family dynamic, but we are a growing, blended family. Anna and Lizzie have lived most of the year in Knoxville, Tennessee, as students at the University of Tennessee. Uh, ben and Rachel live here in Memphis, and Emily and Joel live in Atlanta with their three children, Selma, Polly, and Ezra. Well, and there's family history right there for you. So I love Christmas. I love the food, decorating our home, you know, visiting with friends, uh, special services at church, all of it. 
Well, I do too. But I will say, since marrying into the Shriver family, I've learned to take it to the next level. <laughs> That's right. Shrivers are notable for their holiday passion all holidays, but especially Christmas. And I will say that before studying for this podcast, I had no idea so many of our favorite Christmas traditions we owe to Victorian England. Yeah, well, in fact, Christmas was not even a federal holiday in this country until 1870. And even then, it was an unpaid holiday. Uh, it didn't become a paid holiday until 1938. <laughs> that is Scroogish 1938. I think my grandmother was alive and a teenager at that time. Uh, well, let's talk about um, some of these Christmas traditions that we've inherited from Victorian England. Uh, many of them have found their way all around the globe. You know, growing up in Brazil, uh, just by the nature of the weather, we celebrate holidays very differently down in the Southern Hemisphere. For example, instead of wishing for a white Christmas, we always look forward to heading to the beach after Christmas. No one wants snow. And we have a climate that has way more palm trees than pine trees. But even still, my friend's parents were putting up little Christmas trees and other small decorations around their home. I emphasize little, not because they were belittling the traditions, but in those days, uh, economics was a very limiting factor. You have to remember Brazil was a military dictatorship with high government control for a long time. But even as such, they were throwing in a little of Victorian English traditions. In 2017, a very interesting movie came out, if you haven't seen it, titled The Man Who Invented Christmas, based on a 2008 book by Les Standerford of the same name. Well, anyway, in both the book and the movie, they credit Charles Dickens. He's the man in the, in the title who supposedly invented Christmas. He did live in Victorian England uh, and did write this novella, A Christmas Story, but obviously it's hyperbolic to suggest that he invented Christmas. Christmas was already being celebrated all over the Christian world, and that included Great Britain. But what's not wrong to say is that Dickens strongly impacted the way the British and then ultimately the rest of the world would perceive and even celebrate Christmas. For one thing, although Christmas obviously is a Christian holiday and obviously it celebrates the birth of Christ, the emphasis Dickens put on it was on Christian virtues. And many of those are shared by other faith traditions besides Christianity. So by doing that, he opened up the celebration uh, to something much larger than a sacred day for the Christian faithful. The book has an emphasis on human kindness and generosity and mercy, and these are universal truths. So he universalized the Christmas festivities, extending the sense and the holiday sentiments beyond the sacredness of the religious elements that were inherent in the day. That's why today, you know, Lizzie and Anna, many of their friends are Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, but they can still feel comfortable celebrating Christmas in their own way without necessarily feeling that they're violating uh, their own faith tradition. Well, even if you just focus on the historical context of Victorian England, I would suggest instead of seeing Dickens as creating anything, 
a better way to look at it is that it was all just part of the zeitgeist of the moment that was already emerging. And of course, that's debatable. And uh, I don't want to take away a single thing from the greatness of this book. But as I see things, <laughs> of course not. <laughs> this new way of viewing Christmas was an emerging trend. His book hit right at the right moment, extending it further and, and you know, really perhaps kind of cementing some of these ideas into the ethos that would become the holiday spirit. We understand Christmas uh, really to embody today. And I would also say, just like the Americans, the British had also been a little Scrooge-like in <laughs> doling out holidays to the working man up to that point. In 1843, when A Christmas Carol came out, it was a bank holiday in Britain, but not a holiday for everyone else. And that's why Scrooge could buy a turkey at the end of the story. It was a regular work day for the butcher. And Christmas was definitely a religious moment, and it definitely was a moment to share a meal together, but nothing like what we think of today. We didn't point this out when we were analyzing Emma, you know, the Jane Austen book from 1815. But in that book, we saw the Woodhouses celebrating Christmas by eating a meal, but uh, there wasn't a tree or caroling or, or anything else you'd expect to see in a British novel featuring Christmas. And uh, Christmas, as we celebrate today, emerged in Britain in many ways, due, interestingly enough, really to the elevation of the working class. Uh, and even though there were many struggles with this second industrial revolution, uh, it is partly responsible. I mean, for example, in, uh, in order to protect workers in 1833, a new set of laws were introduced that gave the working class a set number of days off, finally. <laughs> Not a weekend yet. But, uh, also, companies with their mass production of goods began to see the holiday really as a commercial opportunity. And uh, although this has been received with mixed reviews <laughs> oh, over yeah. the years, it did incentivize the spreading of Christmas cheer so to speak. Um, there was also a German tradition that was introduced into the British culture, which has trended around the world since then, and that is the big emphasis on the Christmas tree. Uh, that tradition can really in large part be attributed to King Albert, who was Queen Victoria's husband. And of course, we must remember that King Albert was German. And of course, the Germans and the Austrians have been celebrating Christmas, you know, from my perspective, much more festively for some time. <laughs> Uh, in fact, and I know we don't have time to get into this here, but both the Americans and the British had actually banned Christmas at different points in history. So, But not Germany or Austria. They had Christmas markets, Christmas music, including the very popular Silent Night. They had Santa Claus, the Advent calendar, and of course, the Christmas tree. Uh, tradition has it that Martin Luther set up a tree complete with lit candles in his living room and there it all started. Uh, but almost 250 years later, King Alfred introduced this really wonderful tradition to the British public in 1848 with a drawing of the royal family celebrating Christmas around their tree. That drawing went viral, and there you have it. The, the Christmas tree was now a thing. <laughs> it's amazing to me how some things just catch on and, and some don't. And a tree in, in the living room with, with candles was one of those things. Um, I'm also interested to learn uh, that this was the same era that we got the idea of the Christmas card, a practice I love, but hypocritically <laughs> don't practice. It's a lot of work. I know, it is. And every Christmas when I get cards from friends and family and tape them to the door, I vow that next year for sure I'll send out cards. And then 
I don't. For the reason you just subscribed, it's a lot of work, and I have less and less addresses every year. Uh, but maybe 2022 will be the year. All right. Anyway, back to the 1840s. A man by the name of Henry Cole commissioned an artist to design a card for Christmas. He sold these for one shilling a piece, which is expensive when you see how much Bob Cratchit makes in the book. <laughs> but anyway, the idea of the card took off. And although a lot of people couldn't afford a one shilling card, they figured out fairly quickly that they could make their own. And they did and mailed them to friends and family. By 1880, Britain was selling and producing 11 and a half million Christmas cards beyond the homemade ones. Wow. Uh, and of course, you know, returning to the uh, successes and excesses, both good and bad of that second industrial revolution. I mean, those horrible factories that often employed children and overworked and exploited workers, which are things we're going to talk about. I mean, the technology within them also made it possible to mass produce toys that were really finally affordable for average people. And uh, although feasting and gifts for the average person couldn't be a part of the year as a whole, these technologies made it possible at least once a year for toys to become things that would eventually end up under Christmas trees. And uh, cheap mass-produced decorations could be brought into ordinary homes and ways that had been reserved really for only the wealthy previously. Which brings us to the next tradition, Christmas carols. The Victorians repopularized this tradition as well. Again, back to the industrialization of the world. All of a sudden, it was affordable to print and multiply copies of music. Middle-class families could afford and were buying pianos, and they would sing around them. But even in working-class homes where a piano was obviously out of the question, Carols were holiday entertainment, and they were popular, and they still are for good reason, because singing together is a communal activity. It's something that can be fun. It's a shared experience, and it's bonding. It's something friends and families can do, no matter the age differences in the room. I'll tell you a story about us. Paul Dooley, a friend of ours who taught English and then Latin at Bolton High School, I'll never forget, he would make his kids every year, uh, his Latin classes, go out in the hall and sing Christmas carols to the rest of us in Latin. He has since told me that his students were always reluctant to get out there in front of their peers, but once they got going, they loved it, we loved it, and we still talk about it. It's a Christmas memory for everyone. (laughs) It is for me, too. I mean, as a musician, I love all the Christmas music, and uh, it may be one of my favorite parts, and and I do nothing but listen to Christmas music in my car from Thanksgiving until Christmas, (laughs) and I will admit I do try to avoid getting whammed, though, as much as possible. Oh, yes, I try to avoid getting whammed, too, although uh, that's not possible, and that expression may need a little clarifying. Gary, uh, tell everyone what you mean when you say getting whammed. I can't believe we're going <laughs> to devote time to this. It's an important part of Christmas culture. Well, Wham! <laughs> is the name of a British duo. Uh, Wham! released in 1984. What is likely the most overplayed Christmas song in America, and it's titled Last, Last Christmas. Cri- no, don't sing it. Don't sing it. <laughs> 
You can't go to the mall or shopping anywhere without hearing it. In fact, hearing last Christmas is how you know the Black Friday shopping season has begun. And um, this year, our daughter-in-law, Rachel, who works uh, part-time at Target, came into Thanksgiving and said, I've already been whammed. <laughs> she got whammed before Thanksgiving. So it's become a joke, uh, but kind of a fun one. Because when getting whammed is a fun thing, uh, which brings me to this question. Isn't A Christmas Carol a, a strange title for a ghost story? And taking it a step farther, isn't really a ghost story an inappropriate genre for Christmas? I mean, when you see a title like A Christmas Carol, you don't expect the first chapter to be named Marley's Ghost. <laughs> and the first three words to be Marley was dead. Well, exactly. And of course, as all great writers do... Dickens very cleverly and intentionally linked this ghost story with the idea of music and Christmas music. Of course, as we talked about with Shirley Jackson and Hill House, Gothic literature was very popular during the Victorian era and a moneymaker for sure. So ghosts were a go-to idea, but that isn't really the best reason to understand Dickens choosing this genre for his Christmas tale, although that's an ingenious idea. As you know, I don't like ghost stories, so for me, it was kind of negative. I remember watching the Christmas Carol when it came out with George C. Scott in 1984 and being scared out of my mind. So instead of thinking about A Christmas Carol as being scary, know that the more you understand the purpose, the thematic ideas behind these choices, the less frightening these Christmas ghosts are and the more it makes sense. Also, for me, it helped a little bit when I looked at Dickens' life and the world he lived in. It helped highlight the thematic focus that I missed in 1984. And as with all great literature, we do want to, again, make the disclaimer that context is interesting, but not everything in understanding any piece. Art, by definition, takes a life of its own. Of course, that goes without saying, and I'm sure this is my history and psychology background, nerdliness coming out. But for me, I really do enjoy a book more when I know a little bit about the person who wrote it and the world in which he or she lived in. Well, in that case, let me introduce you to the great Charles John Huffman Dickens, born February 7, 1812, the second son of John Dickens, who was a clerk in the Navy pay office. You know, this was kind of a middle-class lifestyle. And uh, for a while, little Charles had an upper-middle-class upbringing that included private school education. However, John Dickens, Charles' father, spent, as some do, way more than he made. And at that time, the creditors, if you did that, came for you. If you owed money... The government threw you and your family into prison and you had to stay there forever until somebody paid your bills. So as you can imagine, this is an extremely traumatic experience and it's what happened to the Dickens family. Uh, They all end up uh, going in there uh, to debtor's prison except little Charles. Uh, When he was 12... This was when the family went in. He was old enough to go to work. So instead of prison, he was sent to work at Warren's Blacking Warehouse, where for 10 hours a day, 
He would paste labels onto pots of shoe polish, if you can understand that as being hmm. exciting, thrilling work. He would make six shillings a week. Remember I told you a Christmas card cost one shilling? Well, he would make six shillings a week. And with that, he was supposed to pay for his room and his board and anything else. And whatever he had left over, he was supposed to be paying off his family's debt. Although, as you can imagine, that was never going to happen. This reality was brutal and extremely lonely. Uh, he only did it for a year before a relative died, and they got they got lucky there and paid off uh, his dad's debts. They got out of prison, and there's more to it, but Charles was able to go back to school. But that uh, event was so traumatizing, it does show up in basically every single thing uh, he would ever write. He later wrote this, I suppose myself to know this large city as well as anybody else. In it, when he wasn't working, he was unattended and spent a lot of that time starving. He saw the underside of London through the eyes of this hungry, lonely, overworked, dirty child, and he just never got over that. He also never forgave his parents for doing that to him either. He was so ashamed of what happened that year and his father's incarceration and everything uh, that went into that that he kept it. Ex- completely secret for for most of his life, telling maybe his wife and one friend. He also said this years later as an adult, when he was finally able to talk about the experience of that year, it is wonderful to me how I could so easily have been cast away at such an age. No one had compassion enough on me. Dickens saw and experienced to the bone, literally, the horror that is complacency and the cruelty of humans that we can have on each other. This he felt, and this is an important thing to understand, he felt this was at the heart of everything. His experiences were shameful, and the only way he was able to really even talk about them was through his fiction, which, of course, he did. So getting back to his life, he finished school. He gets a job working for a lawyer, eventually gets into journalism, and winds up working in the courts of law and the House of Commons. And on the side, besides just writing news, he started writing stories. During this time, uh, books were things only rich people had, So uh, most people didn't publish books. Instead, they would publish stories in periodicals. And he wrote these stories, and that's how he became popular. Eventually, he did publish his stories in book form, and the first of these was called Sketches by Boz. Two months after Sketches by Boz came out, he married a woman by the name of Catherine Hogarth. Soon after that, he started writing serials, and there he was, well on his way to what would quite soon literally be celebrity. So there's a lot about his personal story that we're not going to get into. Some of it actually is not even (laughs) really likable. I don't know if I would have liked him uh, in real life, but we're not going to focus on any of that now. Instead, uh, let's get back to our narrative, which starts in the beginning of 1843. By this point, 
Dickens is already a fairly famous public figure. He's gone on a year-long tour of the United States. By the way, he really didn't have a positive impression of the United States. He complained about our poor hygiene. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's funny because during that time period, he likely was right. Americans really, you know, hadn't adopted that daily bath routine. (laughs) Well... Right after he came back, he read a parliamentary report by a man named Thomas Southwood Smith titled The Second Report of the Children's Employment Commission. Wow. I mean, that sounds like some light reading. (laughs) No, I think not. This report delineated many abuses and realities surrounding the untold numbers of child workers, upward of 30,000 I've read somewhere. Reading this report really upset him because he knew all too well the realities facing these children and many of their unmarried mothers. He took it upon himself to visit what he called ragged schools. We'd call them urban poor schools, but he called them ragged schools because everyone in them was dressed in rags. So many of these children were already working as prostitutes and thieves. And he really said on many times, I mean, it could have been me. In October of that same year, he went to Manchester and traveled around that industrial city. He saw whole families and streets starving. And the complacency and the inhumanity of all of it is something that he really wanted to write about. He said this, I have very seldom seen in all the strange and dreadful things I have seen in London and elsewhere anything so shocking as the dire neglect of soul and body exhibited in these children. And although I know and am as sure as it is possible for one to be of anything which has not happened, that in the prodigious misery and ignorance of the swarming masses of mankind in England, The seeds of its certain ruin are sown. So he wanted to write about it. And his first idea, he was just going to write a pamphlet entitled An Appeal to the People of England on Behalf of Poor Man's Child. And of course, that would be kind of a scolding piece. But then he got a better idea. Uh, A lecture is not something anyone wants to hear, and it most often never works Why not deliver his idea as a carol, a Christmas carol? But why not make it a ghost story, but a short one, a novella designed to be read out loud in just a couple of hours? And that is what he did. He took him six weeks to write, which is not long once he got started, He wanted it out by Christmas, and he wanted it illustrated in beautiful, colorful illustrations. His vision was so pronounced, and he was so uncompromising about it that no one would publish it the way he wanted, and so he just paid for the publication himself. (laughs) And history was made. I mean, it was a smash hit from the first review, and I quote, Mr. Dickens has produced a most appropriate Christmas offering, which, if properly made use of, may yet, we hope, lead to some more valuable result and mere amusement. I mean, it sold out immediately, and the publisher went on to produce as many as they could as quickly as they could. And within weeks, it became a play, 
Which to Dickens' uh, chagrin, uh, because of the lack of copyright laws, he never got any royalties from the play. <laughs> no, and interestingly enough, he was never able to financially capitalize, ironically, on A Christmas Carol, not the way his uh, ancestors, we have cashed in on it. You know, I found there's over 13 full-featured movies. There's been at least 17 made-for-TV movies. And I even found a a Mr. Magoo version. Oh, no. Uh, But the story, you know, took a life of its own. It was a blockbuster, and he was never able to monetize it. Uh, for the rest of his life, like, you know, you would imagine. But he did, you know, capitalize it to some degree because for the rest of his life, he would perform public readings of A Christmas Carol. And sometimes these readings, now this is, remember, the days before you had, you know, big old microphones and amps, they had over 2,000 people attending wanting to hear him read his book. Uh, from what I could tell, Dickens was probably a better performer than he was a writer. And he was famous for doing all these crazy voices for each of the characters, and everyone loved it. I kind of imagine something like Jim Carrey would do. Oh, brother. I mean, I bet a Jim Carrey reading of A Christmas Carol would be crazy. I know. I think someone should forward this podcast to him and give him the idea. Anyway, I want to get back to the idea that the book is a carol. And just more than this ironic sense that it's a ghost story and we're going to use the word caroling with it. It was designed to do the exact sort of thing that carols are supposed to do. Bring a certain idea to Christmas. And the idea that he wanted to bring to Christmas and to his story and to England as a whole was the idea of redemption. It's an idea that is lost on adults. Uh, For many of us, myself included, you know, Life takes turns that we didn't mean for it to take. And in some cases, it feels like redemption is impossible. That redemption, to be able to go back to change courses, is something that is dead. And that, of course, is Dickens' starting point, death. But even if redemption is dead, does that mean it's lost? Is it possible, no matter who we are, how far gone we are, redemption might still be a ghost? Let's read the introduction, the preface to Dickinson's book. I have endeavored in this ghostly little book to raise the ghost of an idea which shall not put my readers out of humor with themselves, with each other, with the season, or with me. May it haunt their houses pleasantly, and no one wish to lay it. Their faithful friend and servant, Charles Dickens, December 1843. It's interesting to include the preface as we introduce the story for a couple of reasons. First of all, in the preface... I know you can't uh, see this if you're listening to the podcast, but he capitalizes the word ghosts. He's drawing attention to it. He alliterates haunted with houses and connects it with the H in humor in the sentence above. There is something that he wants to haunt us with, a dark side of Christmas, perhaps, a dark side in ourselves, perhaps, but it's not supposed to necessarily 
be dark. There's going to be this element of humor. Uh, yeah, and this book wouldn't be a classic if it were preachy. I mean, moralistic tales are annoying and unfun to read, even <laughs> even if I agree with the moral of the story. Uh, I saw somewhere that Virginia Woolf couldn't stand Dickens for several reasons, but one of which was that he made her feel like she was supposed to take out a checkbook when she read him. <laughs> I know. Uh, Dickens probably wouldn't even have been insulted by that comment of hers. Uh, But I get it. In some of his other books, I do think it might be a fair criticism. But A Christmas Carol, even as a ghost story, isn't really like that. Dickens goes to a lot of trouble to make it funny. Uh, Something that sometimes is lost when people perform it on stage and in the movies. But it can't be lost. It's obvious and blatantly evident when you read the story out loud. I really think, honestly, that if I had read this as a story instead of watched it as a movie, I wouldn't have been frightened by the ghost. He designs it so that you're really not. Let's read the first page of Stave 1, which is what he calls the chapters, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was dead as a doornail. Mind, I I don't mean to say that I know of my own knowledge what there is particularly dead about a doornail. Uh, I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade. But the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hand shall not disturb it, or the country's done for. You will therefore permit me to repeat emphatically that Marley was as dead as a doornail. <laughs> Scrooge knew he was dead? Of course he did. How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he were partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assign, his sole residue legatee, his sole friend, and his sole mourner. And even Scrooge was not so dreadfully cut up by the sad event, but that he was an excellent man of business on the very day of the funeral and solemnized it with an undoubted bargain. The mention of Marley's funeral brings me back to the point I started from. There is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I'm going to relate. If we were not perfectly convinced that Hamlet's father died before the play began, there would be nothing more remarkable in his taking a stroll at night in an easterly wind upon his own ramparts than there would be in any other middle-aged gentleman rashly turning out after dark in a breezy spot, say St. Paul's Churchyard, for instance, literally to astonish his son's weak mind. Scrooge never painted out old Marley's name. There it stood, years afterwards, above the warehouse door, Scrooge and Marley. The firm was known as Scrooge and Marley. Sometimes people new to the business called it Scrooge, Scrooge, and sometimes Marley, but he answered to both names. It was all the same to him. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, (laughs) hard and sharp as flint from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained 
and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rhyme was on his head and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days, and he didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. Well, the narrator says several funny things right at the beginning here. Uh, This thing about the doornails being the deadest piece of ironmongery. I love that word, ironmongery. (laughs) uh, It's pointing out the ridiculous and something that's plain that we're very used to seeing. You know, it's the same kind of thing Jerry Seinfeld made famous in his style of comedy. Exactly. And it has the exact same effect here. We're left smiling. Why do we say dead as a doornail, except for the fact that it alliterates? It makes no sense. There's no point to it all. And so we become detached from Marley's death. And all this death talk doesn't move us. If the narrator, who clearly knows Marley, isn't sad that he's dead, then why should we be sad? We immediately trust this narrator because he's funny. And our first act of buying into the story is we decide right off the bat that we don't have to care that Marley is dead. We then get hit with this description of Scrooge, and it's funny too. He was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scrapping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint from which no steel had ever struck generous fire, secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. I mean, these are absurd comparisons. (laughs) And it's going to say that the cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gale, made his eyes red, made his thin lips blue. He spoke out in a shrewdly grating voice. It's almost hard to say. A frosty rhyme was on his head and his eyebrows. And you can just see, you know, the icicles drooping on his wiry chin. And then it goes to say that he carried the temperature so low that he iced his office in the dog days. And he didn't thaw it at Christmas. There's a point that we didn't read. He's going to go on to say that Scrooge's fire was so small but he kept his clerk's fire even smaller that it only had one piece of coal. And he was so stingy, he would keep the coal under lock and key in his office. I mean, that's just crazy. Scrooge is crazy. In fact, Scrooge is such an awful person that it goes on to say that even blind men's dogs know that when they see him coming, they need to tug their blind owner in a different direction. Wow. This guy is terrible. (laughs) Exactly. He's portrayed as an ugly, mean, cold, and stingy person, but he seems to be hurting nobody really but himself. Well, himself... You know, and the poor clerk that works for him. True, there is that. Scrooge is a disaster, but he doesn't realize it. He also is kind of funny. When his nephew comes over to invite him for dinner, we're going to have the sense of humor. We're going to see the funny side of it. Let's read that just a little bit, a couple pages later. Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you, cried a cheerful voice. 
It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew who came upon him so quickly that this was the first intimation he had of his approach. Ah, said Scrooge, humbug. He had so heated himself with rapid walking in the fog and frost, this nephew of Scrooge's, that he was all in a glow. His face was ruddy and handsome. His eyes sparkled and his breath smoked again. Christmas, a humbug, uncle, said Scrooge's nephew. You don't mean that, I'm sure. I do, said Scrooge. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then, returned the nephew gaily. What right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Ooh, turn that on him. <laughs> Scrooge, having no better answer, ready on the spur of the moment, said, Bah! again, and followed up with, Humbug! Don't be cross, uncle, said the nephew. What else can I be, returned the uncle, when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas! Out upon Merry Christmas! What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older, but not an hour richer? A time for balancing your books and having every item in them through a round dozen of months presented dead against you? If I could work my will, said Scrooge indignantly, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. He should. Uncle pleaded the nephew. Nephew, returned the uncle sternly, keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. <laughs> Not pleasant. No, no, but... Dickens goes to a lot of effort to make this kind of funny. And, of course, this is a very important thing to do. We can't hate Scrooge. If we hate him, then we wouldn't have any pleasure in his redemption. But he's not really an evil person. He's a lost person. And as I said, and I want to go back to this idea, redemption is the point here. The entire point of Christmas is redemption, and that is the connection with the story. Dickens gives it away in the first line as well. The way Dickens writes his first sentence is grammatically incorrect. Marley was dead, and then he puts a colon to begin with. That's not how we use colons. Again, the English <laughs> marker comes out. Mm -hmm. In some versions, and I think maybe even the first version Dickens wrote, there was a period after dead, and that would have been making, to begin with, a rhetorical fragment. But either way, the punctuation tells a story. And of course, as every English teacher will tell you, in the English language, punctuation is always rhetorical and always tells a story. It's to show us what ideas to stop and start at and which ideas are to be connected and what's to be emphasized. And that's exactly what the punctuation is doing here. It's forcing us to stop before and after the words to begin with. This is a story of beginnings. Yes, it's a story of death. We must clearly understand that. That's the first thing he says. If you understand anything about Marley, you know that he's dead. But death is not final. The story is of beginnings. And of course, that's another reason to write the story as a carol. Exactly. Expand on that thought, though. Gary's a musician, and although Dickens was not a musician, he did love music and writing the story in staves. 
is not just a clever take on calling the story a carol. It adds a layer of meaning. But for us to get the meaning, we have to know what that old-fashioned word stave means as it's in its <laughs> musical sense. Uh. Well, you know, to be honest, a stave isn't exactly the right word musically for a division. I mean, divisions in music are called verses, and a stave is really another word for a staff, for anybody who's ever had to suffer through piano lessons. <laughs> I did that. Uh, and, and the staff is where the music is written, and it's the five um, parallel horizontal lines uh, that with the clef indicate the pitch of the musical notes, you know, and then you can spell them out, every good boy does fine. <laughs> F-A-C-E and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, an, another uh, important point musically is that the musical notation allows the music to be played on any instrument. So if you can read music, you can play a song on a guitar or on a piano or on the violin. And it is very interesting that he wants to use the term stave, a musical term, with the musical term carol. Yes. And so look at the many layers of the metaphor here. There are five chapters of the book, and so and each of them is called a stave. Each stave in our story also has a slightly different pitch. If we understand the story, it can be applied to many generations, to many social classes, to many types of people, and many cultures. But I think there's another interesting idea here, although we can mine this metaphor in a lot of different ways. Songs are cyclical as well as universal. Songs contain loops, like the famous Wham song. Oh, that should be mentioned <laughs> in the same breath. How many times do you have to hear, last Christmas I gave you my heart, but the very next day you gave Please, it away? mercy. <laughs> you know, it repeats. It's, it's a cycle. Scrooge will get visited by four ghosts. His life will get repe- repeated by each ghost as he goes back again and takes another lap revisiting it. But more importantly... Time is going to be a very important element in the story. And just as it is meaningless in songs, we're going to eliminate the dimension of time in the story. Songs are not meant to be chronological, not even wham. He loses every year his last Christmas in his heart over and over again. Time is so central to understanding this book. It's about endings. It's about beginnings. It's about childhood. It's about innocence. It's about going back to childhood. It's about going back to innocence. It's about starting over. And I've said it again. It's about redemption. Well, maybe that's why it's really impossible to hate Scrooge. Uh, you know, he's gotten lost, which isn't the same as being evil. No. He's really a man of anxiety, which we're going to talk about in the next episode. But we can all get lost. We can all be obsessive and anxious. Exactly. And in that sense, there is a little Scrooge in all of us. But on the flip side, no one. <laughs> this is crazy as Scrooge. He's the worst case scenario. And what Dickens' story points out that hopefully... Uh, not just is there a little bit of Scrooge in us, there's also a little bit of Scrooge's nephew in us, too. I mean, we can still smile when we run into the cranks of the world. Hopefully, we're not that far gone. Uh, hopefully, we'll even have a little bit of Bob Cratchit, who's that poor clerk who's over there with the solitary piece of coal. At least uh, Dickens is going to encourage us to be like the Cratchits later on in the story. But more importantly than those two male characters... Dickens is going to emphasize and re-emphasize that Christmas is a time where we have to remember 
that there still is a child in each one of us as well. Uh, next episode, when we start by meeting the ghost of Christmas past, we'll meet Scrooge as a child. There is an array of children that populate this book, giving it this strong sense of cyclical and important timelessness. You know, Paul Davis, in his book, um, The Lives and Times of Ebenezer Scrooge, quotes another Victorian writer who was a contemporary of Charles Dickens, uh, a guy named Theodore Watts Dunton. In his book, he quotes a story Dunton would tell, who knows how true it is, but it's a cute story. According to Dunton, he was walking down Drury Lane near Covenant Garden Market on June 9th on a year of Dickens' death, and he overheard a Cockney Barrel girl's reaction to the news of the great novelist's death, and she said, Dickens dead? Then will Father Christmas die too? (laughs) I know. Uh, That is such a cute quote. And of course, Dickens would like to say, well, of course not. I'm standing in the spirit at your elbow every time you read a Christmas carol. (laughs) Well, thanks for being with us today. We hope you enjoyed our look at this larger-than-life classic that we all love. Uh, Follow us on social media. Check us out on all the standard places, you know, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, whatever else you got out there. Uh, Give us a five-star rating and check out our website at howtolovelitpodcast.com. We have lots of great teaching supplies there for, uh, for use in your classroom. Peace out.